in a series of four messages uh, that I have brought you throughout the month of December on the, uh, around the concept of Mariology as it is taught uh, in the Catholic Church and as it relates to what we believe in Evangelical Protestantism. Uh, I want to remind you that this has not intended, was not intended to be some sort of an attack on Catholics. Uh, that is not what my purpose was. I do believe, as I'll tell you at the end of this message, I'll say it again at the beginning, one can truly know and love and experience Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in the Catholic Church, just as they can in our church. And just as there are non-Christians that think they're Christians in the Catholic Church, there are non-Christians that think they're Christians in Protestant evangelicalism. And so what we need to understand here is that the gospel is not something that we are to make harder than it is. The work of the gospel has already been done. That is, Christ has come to save us and to redeem us. It is his work on the cross that has given us salvation. Uh, we all have doctrines that are different, that make us distinctive from others. That's why a reformation took place in the first place. Uh, the the Luthers and the Calvins and the Zwinglies and the Knoxes, uh, men who stood up and took a stand against some of the corruption that they saw within the Catholic Church brought about a reformation around three basic, I like to call them, trumpets. The first trumpet was the concept of sola gratia, which means that we are saved by grace alone, not by works, but by grace alone. That stood in contrast to Roman Catholic teaching that taught that you can indeed be justified as the result of being holy or exercising good works or sanctification. We believe in evangelical Protestantism that that is reversed, uh, that we are justified by God's free act of grace and that as a result of that, he gives us his Holy Spirit and that in so doing, we are made more and more into the image of Christ every day we call that sanctification. So they put sanctification first and justification second. We reverse them and have justification first and sanctification second. The second trumpet was sola fide, or faith alone. That is faith in what? Faith in Christ and in his finished work on the cross, that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we might be saved. That faith in Christ is a gift of God, that even the faith to believe is something that God gives us in that free act of grace. And then the third trumpet was uh, sola scriptura, which means that when we try to decide what is true, what is good doctrine, what is bad doctrine, what is true doctrine, what is uh, false doctrine, our basis of authority has to be the finality of the word of God. This in contrast to Roman Catholic teaching that, uh, that uh, employs two other aspects to deter or to discern truth. That is what tradition says in the church and what is reasonable. And that's how oftentimes popes are able to form dogmas and form traditions that are not scriptural. And so sola scriptura was one of the clarion calls of the Reformation. That is, we cannot trust in the traditions of men we cannot even trust in the reasonableness of men that what is true and what is final is what the word of God teaches, sola scriptura or scripture alone. 
There's a fourth trumpet that I've not spoken to you about, and I believe it's one of the missing uh, parts of the Reformation that the Reformers never really got right. It never really happened the way they anticipated that it would happen or hoped that it would happen. And even to this day, we still have this mindset, and that is the priesthood of all believers. One of the great objectives of the Reformers was to get the altar turned around, to get the priest out of the way, so that you and I can have access to God without any intercessors, without anyone who stands between us, because we are convinced that the scripture teaches that there is but one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But too often today, even in evangelical Protestantism, we rely on the professional clergy. We fail to understand that we are all priests, that we are all ministers, that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you don't need a clergyman to intercede for you. He is not necessarily the one that has all the answers. He is not the one who you are to come and watch the show, so to speak. You are to be deployed in ministry as active ministers of the gospel, as school teachers, as uh, assembly line workers, as office workers, or whatever your job might be. You are a minister in the same way that I am a minister. My job, my occupation is to minister faithfully the word of God to you, so that you can go and minister faithfully the word of God in the context of your circles of influence. Uh, Protestants haven't gotten that yet. We still don't understand the priesthood of all believers. We need to decentralize the ministry from a, prof a professional clergy to an understanding that the church is an organism, a living, breathing, viable organism made up of many tiny little organisms like you, uh, organisms that have gifts and talents and abilities when properly employed, properly exercised, brings revival to communities, revival to the church, brings salvation even to lost souls. So we've missed that. We've missed the idea of the priesthood of all believers. The altar is still turned around. We're still dependent upon a professional clergy. We're still dependent on our priest to mediate for us, to intercede for us. Uh, I've noticed that sometimes when uh, there's a person who is sick or hurting in some way that immediately the pastors are called, and rightfully so, we should be called. But you need to understand that this is not something you should fear ministering to hurting people. It's not something that the professional clergy is to do all by themselves. It is something that you are to learn to do and effectively and probably at times more effectively than either the professional clergy uh, that, that, that any of the professional clergy can. So the priesthood of all believers is one aspect of the Reformation that I believe we really do need to turn around. The whole idea of mediation is something that is inherent in Mariology. The whole idea of Mary as the mediatrix or the mediator, the one who is to plea before her son our case, the one whom uh, we are taught we are taught to believe that, that Jesus, that the Father is too busy for us and that we are to go to his mother who holds great influence over him and that what she says and how she intercedes will help him to answer your prayers. Well, that is all part of this whole thing about the priesthood of all believers, that somehow or another we need mediators. We need saints, we need angels, we need Mary, we need 
dead relatives. We need somebody to intercede in our behalf. People that we pray to, not believing for one moment that we are, in every sense of the word, priests. That we don't need a mediator. That's why when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he gave up his spirit, do you remember what the Bible says happened to the temple's curtain? Do you remember what happened to that curtain? It was what? Torn in two. It was ripped down. Because you see, the Holy of Holies was behind that curtain. And only the high priest could go in there. Only the high priest once a year could go in there and make atonement for the sins of the people. And then he would come out from behind the curtain and he would say to Telestoy, it is finished. Your sins have been forgiven for another year. But when Jesus said it is finished, the curtain was torn down because now you and I have access to the Holy of Holies, which is the presence of God himself. And we don't need a priest. We don't need a high priest. We don't need a mediator. We don't need saints. And we certainly do not need Mary to intercede for us. Now that angers Catholics. Uh, they are upset when they hear somebody like me say that. But the truth is, this is what your church teaches. And what I've tried to do over the past three weeks is to show you from their material exactly what they believe about various aspects of Mariology. Uh, I would encourage you to get those uh, messages so that you may learn effectively uh, how to at least argue the point of view that the scriptures alone are what have or what contain the truth of God's word. I come to the eighth point. There are ten of them. I've already covered seven. The eighth point of Mariology that I want to address is found in the Song of Solomon. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the Song of Solomon. Remember, one of the things that I tried, I've tried to teach you over this, the, uh, the, the, uh, the survey of this material is that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, teaches a, a, a doctrine called the doctrine of amplification. The doctrine of amplification is another way in which I would like to say it's contextual preaching. Uh, preachers can make one verse of scripture say anything they want it to say. We've got radical people in, in Protestantism as well. People who believe uh, that one verse of scripture makes a doctrine. And that that doctrine is to be practiced. For example, I'll give Mark chapter 16 talks about handling snakes. And then there are, there are preachers who have uh, started congregations that handle snakes. Part of their worship service is to pass snakes around. To see if the venomous snakes will bite you and, 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 and inflict their poison on you. Because the, the snakes will, the serpents will bite you. But you will not be affected by the poison. And many have died. As the result of that, uh, our charismatic brethren have taken 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and I believe they have missed the point of what 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 says about the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. We have had lively debates with those brothers and sisters. There's no doubt in my mind they love the Lord, but they're dead wrong on the interpretation of those particular verses. Uh, so we can take a verse of Scripture, we can pull it out of context, we can set it down, we can build a case about it, and then we can stand up and say, we're going to start a whole denomination over this. That's why we have denominations. You have uh, folks in the Wesleyan and Nazarene tradition that believe that there is such a thing as a state of perfection, that you can actually attain perfection in this world. Uh, there are those of us uh, in evangelical uh, Presbyterianism, and I distinguish that from those who are in the, in, the, in the more liberal Presbyterian denominations, some of us believe uh, in the doctrine of election, 
We believe in predestination. We believe that God came to save his people from their sins, that he knows who his elect are and that he knew that before the foundation of the world. Well, that raises all kinds of questions. It raises all kinds of troublesome questions for many people, including those who hold to the doctrines of election. But it, it's what makes us different from those who do not believe in those particular doctrines. For example, the Wesleyans or the Roman Catholics. And so we have our differences. We have our, uh, our points of division, uh, whether it's with uh, Baptists who believe that there's only one legitimate form of baptism, that is immersion, or those of us who believe that there are several different forms of legitimate baptism. Those of us who believe in pedo-baptism, that is we baptize babies, are different from those who dedicate babies. And so on and on the list can go of why the denominations are different. But what distinguishes Roman Catholicism from uh, that kind of uh, contextual uh, type of uh, uh, doctrine and learning doctrine, what distinguishes them is the doctrine of amplification. The doctrine of amplification is there's one verse of scripture and then we bring all these traditions in and all these uh, papal dogmas in and we believe and we bring all of these, uh, these other materials in and we say now let's mix those with this particular scripture and we'll come up with a particular dogma on what we believe. Well, sola scriptura does not permit us to do that. Are you following me? We are not permitted to do that because the scripture alone is what must speak. Case in point is point number eight, which is Mary as the ever virgin. Mary remained, they say, a virgin throughout her entire life. Now, and they base that on the Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 12. You will remember the last time we were together, we talked about uh, the, the, the wife, the spouse in the Song of Solomon, that wonderful woman to whom Solomon uh, has this intimate love affair. Uh, that particular person, they say, is Mary. They say that is the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. That is the woman, the bride in the Song of Solomon. Now, evangelical Protestants do not believe that. We believe that the church is the bride and that the love affair that Jesus has is with his church. It is not with Mary, it is with his church. And so the Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 12, Solomon says to his wife, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Now from those words, locked up, enclosed, sealed, the doctrine of amplification in the Catholic Church has taken them from Mary being a normal woman who gave birth to a normal son uh, and sons and daughters. That ever-virgin Mary is the one that the Song of Solomon is speaking of. Somehow or another, they've taken the Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 12, and they have made Mary a virgin for life. Now, there's some history on this. For example, Jerome, who was a scholar and a pro prolific writer, who wrote more than any other of the early church fathers, maybe with the exception of Augustine. Jerome, who was the one who translated the Old Testament into the Latin Vulgate, which was the common vernacular so that people could understand it. 
Jerome, who was a converted homosexual, who became a hermit, who became a saint in the Orthodox Church, around A.D. 375, he did a real number on this verse, concluding that this verse was speaking of Mary. Her womb would ever remain locked up, and so would her virginity, Thus, the Catholics, from Jerome's statement in A.D. 375, concluded that Mary remained ever a virgin. Now, Jerome was wrong, as was Augustine at times, as was Tertullian at times, as were all of the church fathers at times. When you take a verse out of context and you blow it up into something that it is not meant to be, that's where these things come from. Well, they also have what they call the Protevangel of James, which is an apocryphal book. Now, let me explain what apocryphal books are. The Old Testament has apocryphal books, and the New Testament has apocryphal books. If you go to a Catholic Bible today, and you, you will notice that the book of Malachi, which is the last book in our Old Testament, is not the last book in theirs. They have an intertestamental series of books that are called the Old Testament apocryphal writings. The New Testament is the same. They have New Testament apocryphal writings. Now, an apocryphal writing is a, a writing that has no basis in Scripture. There are, in other words, if you hold uh, the protevangel of James up, or you hold the Gospel of Mary up, you know the, all that uh, Da Vinci Code stuff? Remember all that? That all came from the Gospel of Mary. That all came from Mary Magdalene writing her Gospel, so to speak. You take the writings of these apocryphal books and you superimpose them on the rest of Scripture, and they contradict the rest of Scripture. There are truths that are in Scripture that are not proposed in these apocryphal writings. So in the course of putting together the Bible, scholars over centuries have eliminated certain books, have said these books are either written by authors who are not really the authors. Uh, they call them pseudepigraphal writings, which means false authorship, Somebody put their name to it who really didn't write it. Uh, or the doctrines contained in those apocryphal books are false doctrines that do not have a viability or verification in the rest of Scripture. Well, one of those apocryphal books is the Protevangel of James. It's an apocryphal, apocryphal gospel. And in that particular book of James, which is probably late 2nd century, maybe even 3rd century, long after the rest of the scriptures were written. In that book, it says that Jesus was born in such a way so as to keep Mary's virginity intact. Now, that's the first question you ask. How did she remain ever virgin if she gave birth to a child? Uh, well, the protevangel of James says that God made it happen that she remained a virgin even after the birth of Jesus. Now, remember I told you about certain heresies, Gnosticism, Docetism, heresies that were rising in the early church, heresies that go back as far as uh, the book of Colossians and some of those other early writings of Paul. Gnosticism said Jesus was not really human. He could not really be human. Because God cannot be man. And so the logical conclusion of that was that Jesus really didn't go and die on a cross. Because he was God. They will say that. He was God. 
But he was not man. He was one or the other. Either he was fully God or he was fully man. But because the Gnostics believed that nothing good could ever dwell in the flesh, Jesus could not possibly be God. Or he could not possibly be man. One or the other. And so branches of Gnosticism began to form, infecting the church. So what the Gnostics came out with was this. Jesus appeared to be human. He wasn't really human, but they say he appeared to be human. That is, now listen closely, his actual birth, many of the Gnostics believe his actual birth, in order to keep Mary's virginity intact, was a liquid birth. That he came out like a liquid. That he just materialized that way. And that Mary herself was passive in the birth. Someone, as far as to say, she didn't even know she was giving birth. That's how far the Gnostics were willing to take it. Now, this is what caused the Apostles' Creed writers to stand up and immediately jump from the virgin birth to Pontius Pilate. When you say the Creed, you say this, right? He was born of the Virgin Mary... Then what's the next phrase? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's why the early church writers, those who wrote the Apostles' Creed, wanted to drive home the point that, yes, he was born of a virgin, but he was a real man and suffered under Pontius Pilate. That was in order to address the heresy of Gnosticism. And so they immediately jump from one to the other. So convinced were the Gnostics that Jesus was not human that they were repulsed by the idea that the divine could actually suffer. It repulsed them to think that God could actually suffer. Now, Basilides, one of those Gnostics, went as far as to conclude, get this now, when Jesus was going to the cross, since he only appeared to be human that he was really God, but only appeared to be human, when he was going to the cross, and the weight of the cross became so great that they were afraid, the soldiers were afraid that he might die before he's crucified. Remember that part of the Gospels? They pulled a man out of the crowd called Simon of Cyrene. Basilides actually went as far, one of the Gnostics has to say, that when Simon was pulled out of the crowd to take the cross up to the hill, so that Jesus could be crucified and not die before he gets there, Simon actually was the one who went to the cross, and Simon was the one who died on the cross because the divine could not suffer. So Jesus could not be fully human. Now, that is important for us to understand when we start talking about Mary as the ever-virgin many of the doctrines that came out of that, many of the doctrines that form the backdrop of her ever virginity have everything to do with who Jesus was, what he was, was he fully God, was he fully man, or was he fully both? And many of the heresies were birthed out of that. Well, they even go further. They said that Mary would remain for all time the perfect virgin in her purity and obedience, and this in contrast to Eve. 
Remember what we said about Eve being the set or Mary being the second Eve? Eve failed in her disobedience. Mary succeeded in her obedience. Eve brought the sin of the human race to bear because of her eroticism. Mary brought salvation as the co-redeemer with Christ and because of her obedience. Well, that's part of what came out of all of this uh, about her ever virginity, that she remained perfect in her purity and perfect in her obedience in contrast to Eve, who was disobedient. Now, the gospel, or the, uh, the brothers of Jesus and his sisters, uh, six in all, at least seven, were assigned to Joseph by a previous marriage. The scripture tells us nothing about Joseph ever being previously married. So in order to maintain her virginity, in order to keep her a virgin for her whole life, to be perfectly, as they call it, pure, the six brothers and sisters of Jesus that are enunciated for us in the Gospels, in Matthew 12 and Matthew 13, they're actually named there for us, actually become his stepbrothers by way of a previous marriage that, that Joseph had. He was a widower, they say. So Mary, in essence, they say, raised her stepkids. Now, when we look at Mary's virginity, in their section of the catechism, it says she remained a virgin in conceiving her son, a virgin in giving birth to him, a virgin in carrying him, a virgin in nursing him at her breast, always a virgin. With her whole being, she is the handmaid of the Lord. Or they say this, from the first formulations of her faith, the church has confessed that Jesus was conceived solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, affirming also the corporal aspect of this event. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit without human seed. The fathers see in the virginal conception the sign that it was truly the, he was truly the Son of God who came in a humanity like ours. And thus, St. Ignatius of Antioch at the beginning of the sec second century says, you are firmly convinced about our Lord, who is truly of the race of David, according to the flesh, son of God, according to the will and power of the flesh, truly born of a virgin. He was truly nailed to a tree for us in his flesh under Pontius Pilate. He truly suffered as he is also truly risen. There's not a word of that I disagree with. We and the Roman Catholics hold tenaciously to the virgin birth. We all believe in the virgin birth. Catholics are not Gnostics. They don't believe in some sort of liquid birth. Catholics believe, just as that paragraph says, the same way we believe when it comes to the actuality of the virgin birth. Further, they say, the gospel accounts understand the virginal conception of Jesus as a divine work that surpasses all human understanding and possibility. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, said the angel to Joseph about Mary, his fiancée. The church sees here the fulfillment of the divine promise given through the prophet Isaiah, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Please understand that Roman Catholics are orthodox when it comes to believing in the virgin birth. They believe in that virgin birth the same way you and I do. And then there's one other paragraph that I'd like to throw out there to you. People are sometimes troubled by the silence of St. Mark's gospel 
and the New Testament epistles about Jesus' virginal conception. Here they're going to try to answer the critics. Some might wonder if we were merely dealing with legends or theological constructs not claiming to be history. To this we must respond. Faith in the virginal conception of Jesus met with lively opposition, mockery, or incomprehension of non-believers, and they're very right on that. Jews and pagans alike. So it could hardly have been motivated by pagan mythology and by some adaptation to the ideas of the age. The meaning of this event is accessible only to faith, which understands in it the connection of these mysteries with one another in the totality of Christ's mysteries, from his incarnation to his Passover. Up to that point, I fully agree with everything they're saying in the catechism. There's no doubt that the virgin birth has created great controversy and that it became the basis for even persecution in the first and second centuries for Christians to believe this radical doctrine. But now they go on and say something I totally disagree with. It says, St. Ignatius of Antioch already bears witness to this connection. Mary's virginity and giving birth and even the Lord's death escaped the notice of the prince of this world. These three mysteries worthy of proclamation were accomplished in God's silence. In other words, Satan did not know that Jesus was born of a virgin. And the logical extension of that, they say, is that Jesus, when he went to the cross and he died on the cross was something that passed by Satan. He didn't quite see all of that. Well, when you understand Genesis 3.15, where God turns to the serpent and he says, the seed of the woman will crush your head. And in the process, you will bruise his heel. And that the rest of the Bible is the story of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. It boggles my mind that anyone would think that somehow or another Satan missed the virgin birth. Especially when God told him that the seed of a woman will crush your head. Don't you think he was on the lookout? Don't you think he was watching carefully? Don't you think he knew that Jesus was that seed of the woman? Well, if Satan didn't know about the virgin birth, and if he didn't know about Jesus' death on the cross, if he was... If, he was, if this was passing him by and he, he didn't quite see it or didn't quite acknowledge it, then that brings back to the surface the whole idea that Mary is the seed of the woman. And then logically, Satan would miss that. And this is what Roman Catholic teaching is. She is the seed of the woman, they say. Well, up to that point, when you read their catechism, we pretty much agree with them, except for that last phrase, on the virgin birth. But now the issue becomes, did she remain a virgin? Did she stay a virgin? They say the deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as I prothanos, the ever-virgin. Now, we need to see something here. We need to look very carefully at what they say in this next phrase. 
Against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus. The church has always understood these passages as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In fact, it, James and Joseph, brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ, whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary. They are close relations of Jesus, according to an Old Testament expression. Now, when you put these two paragraphs together, here's what I'm hearing. Here's what the Catholic Church is teaching. They are teaching that Mary had to stay a virgin in order to preserve her eternal purity. Remember what we taught you about the Immaculate Conception? That she was born without the sin nature? That she never sinned in her life? That she remained perfect, in perfect obedience her whole life? And that as the result of that, as you'll see in a moment, she was assumed body and soul into heaven. In order to maintain that purity, they reason that she and Joseph could not have had physical relationships with each other. She could not have birthed other children. My question is very simple. Since when is having an intimate relationship with your wife considered to be something impure? Since when is it impurity to do what God called good? When he created Adam and Eve, what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply. Come together. This he called good. Somehow or another, this is going to violate Mary's so-called eternal purity. Additionally, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. By the way, I intended this series to stretch you. I hope you're being stretched. It's not the four spiritual laws rehearsed. Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He died on the cross for your sins. Come and be saved. We already know that. Uh, somehow or another, we Christians need to get off the milk of the word and we need to get onto the meat of the word. This is meaty stuff. So it's going to make you think a little bit. And some of you are looking at me like you're thinking a little bit. I see some smoke coming out of your ears. That's good. That's what I want to see. In Matthew chapter 12, I want you to look with me beginning at verse 46. Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his, mother's, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother, it does not say the other Mary, it says, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, there's no indication in that passage that he was speaking of some other Mary and some other children from that some other Mary or even some other stepsons from that other Mary or even from Joseph. But then go to the next chapter in chapter 13 and look with me beginning at verse 54. It gets even better. 
verse uh, 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, if you take the scriptures at face value, and you don't pour in what Jerome had to say or what the traditions of the church had to teach or what some pope decided was reasonable or try to superimpose a doctrine of Mary's ever virginity on something that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. If you read purely the scriptures and see what the scriptures are teaching, it tells you that he had four brothers and at least two sisters, probably more, which was quite in keeping with what a young Jewish family at that time would have done. When Mary was 14 years of age or 15, she had Jesus. She procreated throughout her adult life. And she bore sons and she bore daughters. And Jesus had these brothers and these sisters. But somehow or another, we are led to believe that there's some other Mary whose children these are. Or Joseph, who was now dead, a widower who had these sons and these daughters that Mary raised. Nothing is said of that in scripture. They're simply called his brothers, his sister, and his mother. So the ever virginity of Jesus certainly brings uh, serious problems to the doctrine of uh, amplification. One more on this is Jesus is Mary's only son. That's not true. We just read that he had others. But her spiritual motherhood extends to all men whom indeed he came to save. Now, this goes back to the motherhood of Mary being the mother of the church. Uh, this doctrine is just not taught in scripture. It's just not biblical. Uh, but nonetheless, if we go with them for a moment, Mary becomes the mother of all believers. She's your mother. She's my mother. But then it says here, the son whom she brought forth is he whom God placed as the firstborn among many brethren. That is the faithful in whose generation and formation she cooperates with a mother's love. And you pick that up. The generation of brothers and sisters, that is of sons and daughters who are children of Christ by faith, she cooperates in making that happen. She is the one who cooperates in the formation of these sons and these daughters. And it goes hand in hand with what I taught you last week, a movement both of the clergy and the laity in the Catholic Church to declare the fifth dogma of Mariology to be Mary as co-redeemer. That Jesus redeemed and Mary redeemed. That they redeemed the, the, the race together. Now, Mary's virginal motherhood in God's plans, you know, the eyes of faith, they say, can discover in the context of the whole of Revelation the mysterious reasons why God in his saving plan wanted his son to be born of a virgin. These reasons touch both on the person of Christ and his redemptive mission. 
and on the welcome Mary gave that mission on behalf of all men. Remember, she had to be obedient or it would not have happened. That's what they say. Or Mary's virginity manifests God's absolute initiative in the incarnation. I, I agree. Jesus has only God as Father. I agree. He was never estranged from the Father because of his human nature, which he assumed, except for one time. That one time was when he died on the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that very moment, God the Father turned his back on God the Son and truly alienated him from him so that he might experience the equivalent of an eternity in hell for you and for me as he bore our sins. To say that Jesus never was alienated from the Father is to miss the cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is naturally son of the Father as to his divinity and naturally son of his mother as to his humanity, but properly son of the Father in both natures. We agree. Or skip 504 and let's go to 505. It says, by his virginal conception, Jesus, the new Adam, ushers in the new birth of children adopted in the Holy Spirit through faith. Now watch this. How can this be? Participation in the divine life arises not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. I think the Bible makes it very clear that men do not initiate salvation. Men, by our flesh or by our good works, do not make it happen. We do not will salvation to come. The Catholics rightfully interpret that verse. The acceptance of this life is virginal because in its entire, it is entirely the Spirit's gift to man. The spousal character of the human vocation in relation to God is fulfilled perfectly in Mary's virginal motherhood. That is, her motherhood is her, the motherhood of all who believe. She had to remain a virgin in order to be your mother. That's what they're teaching. But I want to isolate just that center section. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, look at the next paragraph. Mary is a virgin because her virginity is the sign of her faith, unadulterated by any doubt, and of her undivided gift of herself to God's will. It is her faith that enables her to become the mother of the Savior. Mary is more blessed because she embraces faith in Christ than because she conceives the flesh of Christ. At once virgin and mother, Mary is the symbol and the most perfect realization of the church. The church indeed, by receiving the word of God in faith, becomes herself a mother. By preaching the baptism, she brings forth sons who are conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of God to a new and immortal life. She herself is a virgin who keeps in its entirety the purity of faith she pledged to her spouse. There again I ask the question, since when is it impure 
to have a physical relationship with your spouse. And with all of that being said and done, how can you justify the earlier verse which says that salvation comes not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God? How can you justify that? With Mary's ascension, so to speak, Mary's acceptance, Mary's faith being part and parcel to the redemption plan. It's her will. It's the will of a person. It's the will of man. It doesn't fit. You cannot justify it scripturally. The church does not bring forth sons. Christ brings forth sons. The church is not the mother. She is the bride, the bride of Christ. And he is the one who gives birth to sons and to daughters. That's why it cannot be of man. It must be of God. All right, quickly, let me wrap this up. Number nine is Mary is an apparition. You hear about Lourdes and Fatima and all these places where Mary supposedly appears to people. They get healed. They take their canes in there. You know, don't condemn that too quickly. Doesn't Benny Hinn do the same thing? Don't the televangelists do the same thing? We have, we have our share of Protestant charlatans who promise people all sorts of things. They claim to have had visions too. They base that on Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, which says that in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Catholic Church reasons, well, the Bible says that we're going to see visions, so why not have them be visions of Mary? Let's have apparitions of Mary. Catholics rightly reason that visions that started in the Old Testament did not cease in the New Testament. They reason that if Abraham, Jacob, Ezekiel, and Daniel could have visions, and if Peter, Paul, and John could have visions, then why cannot some little girl in Fatima or some children in Lourdes have visions? And here again is where they bring the doctrine of amplification right to the forefront to justify their many apparitions of Mary. And then finally, Catholic Church teaches that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. They say, well, let's take a look at Jesus. He was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses stood on his right side. Elijah stood on his other side. Peter's watching all this. Here's Jesus conversing with Moses and Elijah. He knew that that was Moses and Elijah. They were talking about his coming or impending suffering. So here is Moses and Elijah. Elijah, who was taken up into heaven without the benefit of death, just like Enoch, who walked with God and was no more. And they reasoned from that, if Enoch and Elijah could be raptured, why not Mary? And besides that, where Jesus goes, she goes. Because he is the face of Mary. He's the only face of Mary. He looked like her. Obviously, since God is a spirit. So where she goes, where he goes, she goes. So if he was taken up, then they say she was taking, taken up. And they base this on Psalm 68, 18, where it says, When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. 
it's a real stretch to take that verse, apply the doctrine of amplification, and somehow reason that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. Besides that, the other passages that speak of those two men who were taken up into heaven, Enoch and Elijah, are recorded for us. We have proof of that in Scripture. There's nothing in the Scripture that teaches that Mary was assumed body and soul. And then they take John chapter 12 and verse 26, which says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Since she served him perfectly, since she remained perfectly sinless, then she had to follow him to heaven. That's their reasoning. And so they teach that. The most blessed Virgin Mary, when the course of her earthly life was completed, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven, where she already shares in the glory of her son's resurrection, anticipating the resurrection of all members of his body. Or finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory, and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be more fully conformed to her son, I don't understand that. How could she be fully conformed, more fully conformed to her son when she was already perfect? When you're perfect, you're conformed to her son. The Lord of Lords and the conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. So you are to look to her assumption body and soul, as the promise of your assumption into heaven. I thought 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that it is Christ's resurrection that gives us the hope. It is Christ's glory that we seek. In giving birth, you kept your virginity. In your dormishon, you did not leave the world, O Mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceived the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. I'm not making this up. All right, let me summarize. There are five dogmas that the Catholic Church has embraced as true. The Immaculate Conception, Mary was born without sin and remained sinless. Theotokos, that she was the mother of God. Ever virgin, that she stayed a virgin for the rest of her life. And the virgin birth, which we agree with them on. They want to add a fifth one called co-redeemer. There is a mass movement to make that happen. This present pope is in favor of it, it seems. Secondly, it is Christ and not Mary who is the seed of the woman. We need to embrace that and defend that. Thirdly, there can be no co-redeemer and there can be no other mediator because Christ died alone. The plan of salvation did not depend upon Mary's obedience. It depended on Christ's obedience. The fourth trumpet, fourthly, of the Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. I spoke of that earlier. We need to understand that access to God the Father is something that has been made possible by the death of Christ on the cross. When the curtain was torn in two, it was torn in two for you. And finally... I want to reiterate that Catholics who trust in Christ for their salvation and are saved regardless of their 
how wrong their other doctrines might be, are saved just the same way you and I are by the skin of our teeth. We need to understand that salvation is, we're going to be surprised. When we get to heaven, you're going to be surprised as to who's there. And you're going to be shocked as to who's not there. Because salvation is all of Christ. In my experience as a Roman Catholic, I can categorically tell you that my years in the Roman Catholic Church prepared me for my salvation. I learned things about Christ. I learned about the love of Christ. I learned about his suffering, his death. I learned about his resurrection and the power of the gospel. I learned all of that while going to Catholic schools and having nuns slap my hands with uh, rulers, which I had many times. Uh, so I cannot look back and say, that was all a waste of time. I look back and say that was all part of my spiritual birth line that brought me to understand the gospel. And when I understood the gospel and embraced the gospel, and I looked at Roman Catholic teaching, and I saw that it could not be justified scripturally, that is when I made a decision that I could no longer stay within the context of the Catholic Church because I could no longer believe doctrines that had no scriptural substantiation. That was my purpose in this series. That's what I hoped you would take away from you so that you would see historically the setting of Mariology, the heresies that the church was fighting at the time, how the doctrine of amplification has taken the church to far extremes in the same way that it, is, it has taken some of us to far extremes. But let's remember where our salvation comes from. It comes from a God who has loved us with an everlasting love. A God who has redeemed us from the pit. A God who died alone and bore the sins of his people. Who conquered sin and death once and for all and was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who now, after ascending into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us, even as we have groans and moans that cannot be uttered. The Spirit knows our infirmities. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our needs. And that intercessor can be no other than Christ himself. For us to settle for any less would be to denigrate the gospel of what he came to, to give us. All right, let's stand together as we close in prayer. I hope this has been a challenge to you, and I hope it has been a blessing to you in this four-part series. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in the Word. Bless this congregation now as they go and they absorb what they've learned. And perhaps, Lord, it will stimulate more study on their part to look at some of the deeper issues of the faith, to study Gnosticism and Docetism and some of those other isms that have become wasms. And we pray that you would just help them to see Help us all to see how truth remains forever. Truth endures. That your word is truth. And 10,000 years from now, if you tarry, this word will still be true. The gospel will still be the only way men can be saved. Thank you for this time together. May the grace of God, the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore. Amen.